Hello, uh, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and currently we're looking at uh, the second volume of the selected letters of HP Lovecraft. Um, this, this lecture I want to look at today um, uh, will cover 20 letters written between November 1925 to May 1926. So to put this in a, the historical context of Lovecraft's life, this basically covers his final months in New York City and his return to Providence. Um, and so a lot of these letters deal with his feelings about New York, his feelings about New England, his desire to return to New England. And yes, we talked about that stuff in the last episode, but as we go through these letters, we'll get a little bit more uh, detail on that. <clears throat> I think it's one of the more well-known aspects of kind of Lovecraft's um, life, you know, S.G. Josie's biography, of course, is called I Am Providence and the, the letter from which that comes. Uh, that phrase is actually on his tombstone, of course, but it's it's the name of that two volume biography. And that letter in which that appears is is in the selections where I'm going to look at um, right now. Um, a lot of career things, too, going on here, like some of his looking for little uh, jobs. Um, his connections with his other New York friends. So this is kind of a good extension from the last episode, if you listened to it, where we looked at uh, the first selection of, of letters in the second volume of, of this collection. Um, but uh, let's see what we can find in here. Um, so the, the first letter that we can look at uh, from November 1925 is to James F. Morton. Um, he's kind of here. This is continuing something... Uh, like that was that came before because as we remember uh, earlier in 1925 he had his clothes stolen and he really couldn't afford to rebuild his wardrobe um, and it coming on winter he really complained a lot in this letter about his, the cold and, and this isn't the first time or the only time I've seen him kind of complain about just the temperature um, he seemed to have been pretty sensitive about it um, he says uh this goddamn cold, I can't navigate a pen, although my present attire consists of the following strata. Suit, weather over, winter overcoat, heavy blanket, waves from the electric heater one foot away. So that's what he was down to for, for winter clothing. Not much in this letter. Uh, you know, I, it's as good a time to, is, is now to talk again about the limitations of using the selected letters. Um, thankfully, we have much more complete uh, collections of his writings with various people uh, that have been published in the years since the selected letters, like the Howard ones, I'll definitely look at. If I can get a hold of the others, I mean, take a look at those as well. Um, but, you know, this is a really just skimming the surface of what's available. And the editors tried to do a lot of things. They, tr they wanted to have letters that, um, you know, kind of reflected his values and his interests in various topics that kind of traced his career, uh, traced his movements, highlighted his friendships. You know, and so and added some of this personal drama. So, um, you know, a lot of the letters are, letters are actually shrunk down. We only get a few words from what was presumably a much longer letter. That's just what you have to deal with here. But, you know, I, I think this is still a place a lot of people go to to think about Lovecraft's writings, right? And, you know, not many of us are going to spend much of our life reading Lovecraft's letters unless you're a nut like me or if you're a scholar. But... If, if you do really like Lovecraft writing, I think it's worth looking at, and, and they're a good starting point for that. If you're just a casual Lovecraft fan and you want to know more about his values and thoughts, it's a good place to go. So uh, enough on that, but 
Um, yeah. Um, that's... So he was complaining about the cold and, and all that. But um, a more interesting letter was later that month, also to James F. Morton, his friend. Um, and this is actually sh showing Lovecraft as kind of being a... Uh, a middleman for communication between various writers um, and he, he does this a lot he doesn't just talk to the person he's writing right in but he talks about his whole network of correspondence and in this case um, actually uh, Long um, uh, Frank Belknap Long his, his younger contemporary someone he wrote through for much of his wrote to much of his life uh, actually forwarded these questions to Morton through Lovecraft about writing um, and you know, they basically are, one of these is like a grammatical question. One is more about style and if the style is too overblown. Um, and, and the third question, is it good form to add to the signature of the writer of the introduction of a book, a list of his literary achievements? So it's like an etiquette um, question. So that's, uh, again, not a very long letter, at least the selection we have here is not very long, but uh, it does show Lovecraft. Um, playing this role as a as a as a middleman of sort. Now the next one is much more interesting. Uh, dated December twenty second to twenty third, nineteen twenty five. I get the sense it was a much longer letter, but it's it's to someone unknown. It's, it's not the first time we've seen one of these letters to unknown. Uh, I don't know if it's the same unknown as before. Uh, we don't got that information, but. Um, it's it's a it's a more lengthy one. In this in this one, we see him talk about some of his philosophies, some of his personal struggles, and some of his uh, views on race. Also, his marriage is talked about in this in this letter. Um, so basically, we see Lovecraft here thinking about getting a job, uh, something he's thought about off and on while in New York. Obviously, he's not making that much money from his writing, um, and. You know, it's one of the reasons he does go back to Providence. It's not just, not only his disgust with New York, it was kind of financial issues. And once his wife left New York, there wasn't that much keeping him there. Uh, but, you know, that's another thing here. We see him talking about his desire to return to New York. Um, but, you know, I think part of his concern here is he really has a feeling that his aesthetic responsibilities that there, that he has aesthetic responsibility that must be met. He's really kind of saying, like, I'm an artist and, and I have to accomplish certain things as an artist. And taking a job would kind of get in the way of those those goals. Um, he says, uh, where should I start this? It's a really long sentence. Um, I've never beheld a more admirable attitude of disinterested and solicitous regard in which each financial shortcoming of mine is accepted and condoned as soon as it's proved inevitable, and in which acquiescence is extended even to my statements that the one essential ingredient in my life is a certain amount of quiet and freedom for literary composition, to be snatched whenever or not I am, not I am not otherwise employed, whether or not it conflicts with the schedule of early hours and regularity, which a more simple industrial re regime stamps as normal. A devotion which can accept this combination of incompetence and aesthetic selfishness without murmur, without murmur, contrary though it must be to all expectations originally entertained, is assuredly an, a phenomenon so rare. Um, so I think you get the idea. He's just basically saying, you know, the difficulties, which I think we all appreciate, of, of being a writer, being productive, uh, even in hobbies, but especially if you're trying to be creative, uh, when you have a nine to five. I, I think it's so... 
I mean, work is so beats you down so much that even if you have time, even if you you have your eight hours for yourself that the eight hour day was supposed to give you, you know, how much of that is spent just recovering? How much of that is spent just preparing meals and getting to work and, and dealing with other stuff? And, and how do you really do something when your mind's been drained from, from, from work? And then what does that leave? It leaves either you become a commercial artist that can profit, they can live off your work, or you, you suffer. Um, so that, that's an important, I think, uh, thing to notice about this letter. Uh, another is his conversation about ancients versus moderns. Um, he's, as we, I think we know, he has this kind of preference for the ancient, for the ancient world, the Romans. And I think even he puts the 18th century kind of in this ancient, certainly it's not this modern industrial machine age that he so often uh, laments, especially his later writings from the later 20s and 30s. Um, one thing he doesn't like about modernity, he's really here like, uh, I'm thinking of... Um, Who's that guy? Burke, Edmund Burke. You know, he's kind of saying, you know, revolt against like just and he thinks modern age is full of these kind of revolts against tradition. And when you do that, you kind of end up with disorder. Right. That was Burke's criticism of the French Revolution. English can have talk about rights because they have inherited them. They're part of their culture. Other ones can't, can't wake up one day guillotine a king or two and then and then say oh now we're free it's it's it doesn't work that way um he says harsher sudden revolts and repudiations are alien to the englishman of taste and when one's profoundest admirations deference and regard are elicited by the conditions one encounters it is not difficult to follow that conservative course on which all the canons of art and all the precepts of gentle breeding map out as the only proper one so he connects this to then uh art itself which he thinks you know, he's also, as, you know, as, as kind of transformative and radical, he is as an artist. I mean, so many people go back to Lovecraft when they when they think, like, who do I go back to for my inspiration? And, and usually don't only go back to figures like that if they are transformative. But he saw himself as much more conservative. Um, uh, now, the key thing, like, personally for Lovecraft in this letter is Sonia's apparent approval of his return to New England. Because I, I think he was sort of waiting for that. And um, at the main time, same time, Sony's going to try to get to Boston. So they remain separated for pretty much the rest of their life. They end up getting divorced, obviously. Um, now, as for his feelings about New York, he never or rarely hesitates to, to stick out, stick up, uh, stick into the, his letters, his feelings about New York, especially the letters from this period. Um, and he writes this. Um, in Boston, indeed, I might be able to put forward, sorry, in Boston, indeed, I might be able to put more inward heart, though certainly put no more patience and diligence into the quest, for there would be around me a world in which I barely some semblance of relation instead of the alien desert that is the Gotham of today. That's a very, very uh, typical language. I don't think it's the, the only time he used such language. I think we came across that in the last episode. So kind of an important letter. Fortunately, we don't know, at least I don't know, or the editors at the time didn't know who it's from. Maybe we know now. If you know, let me know. Um, it's 201, number 201 in the selected letters. Uh, the next letter, uh, don't say too much about it. It's to Clark Ashton Smith. It's essentially praise for Clark Ashton Smith. So many of the letters to Smith are, are Lovecraft kind of oozing with uh, admiration for Smith's work. Uh, I don't I haven't I don't see that before. He's always polite to others. He's always 
know, even people he rewrote for, right? And he, you know, he basically ghost wrote for. He never hesitates to praise their poetry or their writing in some way. Um, he's actually quite generous in his in his praise for others. But with Clark Ashton Smith, it seems overblown. He's kind of more of a fanboy crush on on Smith. Um, I think maybe because he really saw some common ground between him and Smith, especially in how Smith really gravitated to the cosmic. And, and Lovecraft says as much in this letter. Uh, so, unique in cosmic in, 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 his, in his work. Of course, Smith was an artist as well as a, as a writer. Uh, next, again, to James F. Morton. A lot of these letters here are really short. This... I've been doing them 20 letter chunks. Some, you know, some of these letters get really long, but these particular selections are fairly short. So, um, well, let's see how long it takes to get through these. Um, I mean, if I do end up, end, end up with selections where there's a handful of really long letters and a bunch of short ones, I may just skip a few, but until I feel the need to do so, you might as well go through one at a time. So next we have James F. Morton again, uh, December 27th, 1925. Uh, basically, it starts out as a report. Actually, most of it is a report on on a Christmas party he was at, um, Belknap Long's Christmas party. Uh, he lists what he received as gifts. And I don't know, it kind of made me sad. I, I don't know if it was like charity. Like, you know, if, if you have a really poor friend who's really on hard times and you don't want to give him charity, you don't want to just give him money. But at a party, at a birthday party or something, and you give him a bunch of stuff he needs, you know, that's, it's more respectable. Um, he talks about what he hauled back from this. Shaving soap, talcum powder, toothbrush, nail file, card shirt studs, tape measure, pen holder, garters, envelopes. Of course, envelopes being very, very important for Lovecraft as he wrote all these letters. Um... So I don't know how I feel about that. I, I got this. I got the feeling maybe they were being charitable with him. Um, but then we have him playing. Talk about playing a game um, where they're identifying advertising pictures, and he lost. He did really bad at this game. And, I mean, he wasn't. It's like I, I imagine what how you would do it, like Price is Right or something. Uh, you know, if you remember that game, I think that game show still around, right? Bob Barker, where you won the game if you were like. The closest to consumer culture right and i remember playing that game watching that game show as a kid and i always got things wrong it's because i never shopped right or you know i went shopping with my parents but i always hung out in the movie rental area or the the newsstand part of the grocery store i mean i couldn't tell you what cost more a, a pack of uh, a pack of uh, wheat thins or a box of cereal or whatever you know but if you shop you, you know the game's easier do i probably do better at it now i guess but after a little bit more life experience but that's kind of funny it's a little nice little personal uh window into lovecraft's uh into a cliche of lovecraft of him being kind of aloof about these things but you know advertising pictures unless you're reading a lot of popular magazines you're not going to have an attention to them um and again a mention of his calling to providence specifically um when I got home, I certainly had the festive little dump to heap around my submarine tower, which, by the way, I keep on my desk in plain sight, mounted on a miniature cedar chest labeled Providence, Rhode Island, which formed part of my home Christmas box. Again, a longing for Providence. Um, next one, again, James F. Morton. This one's January 3rd, 1926. Um, 
know, mostly about his poverty, his feeling he needs a miracle to 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 get by. Um, quote: A survey of my unwantedly depleted coffers reveals the embarrassing circumstances that if I attempted the scholarly Patterson pilgrimage tomorrow night, I shall not have pence enough to finance my meals till the next cargo of gold, ivory, apes, and peacocks ambles down from Ophir Way. Um, you know, what is he working on? What is he working on? Well, he tells a little, he tells Morton a little bit what he's working on. Specifically, uh, he's still working on supernatural horror in literature. The way he always talks about it, he says that, that article for Cook or that article I'm working on, that's the language. I don't think it had a name yet, but it's super happy. Supernatural horror in literature, which when I'm done with these letters, we'll take a look at. Um, don't the set of letters. I think it'll be nine episodes until, um, We'll, we'll shift gears, look at that. Um, a little of other stuff here, mostly personal letters. Some of his personal uh, struggles, what he was reading, things like that. He was busy, quite busy reading at this time. Um, next letter uh, to back home, to uh, Clark, to his, his aunt, F.C. Clark. Uh, this is a very short selection. There's no ellipses i don't know if this is just a short little like posted post like a little note um but it's just a report on what's going on again it's mostly about this cook article this article that will become supernatural horror in literature a lot of the letters from this period talk about this article um he also i and i think we kind of see a growing i guess a bit of a depression here uh, or a little sadness a little frustration with being in new york because he talks about escaping social duties something that did give his life a lot of meaning in new york i mean it was he was always very social in the terms of his letters but and for much of his time in new york he had that circle of friends that gang that would meet uh people would come to his house and he t- says here he he's trying to avoid uh this partially because of his need to work um, on this um, but this has been good for him kind of focusing his literary thoughts or at least the article has been good for focusing his literary thoughts um, but I, I, there's a series of letters here that are quite sad I think in, in, in just showing his financial situation his his emotional situation and, and it's easier it's easier to I mean this stuff is important when you consider why he leaves for Providence it's not just the mongrel Alexandrian horror um, that he saw at New York as that's that's part of it, but that's not the primary reason he leaves. Uh, there's there's other reasons. Um, next uh, to uh, James F. Morton again. This is January second, nineteen twenty six. Again, all about working on supernatural horror and literature. Um, next, uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, like I, I don't know, nothing more, nothing else really here to say, except it's more fanboy praising of, of Smith's work, his paintings in particular. Um, but again, we see Lovecraft being kind of the, trying to connect people together and being a bit of a matchmaker. In this case, he's trying to matchmake his boys club, his New York circle with Smith. Now, remember, Smith and Lovecraft never meet. They never actually meet in their life they're pure correspondence uh that's not true of many of the people you corresponded with um but he is trying to say well you know your work will be very very popular among the this boys club and they want to see your work and all that and there's actually other letters in which we see lovecraft trying to get smith to to bring his work to new york because he thinks it'll be very popular there 
Uh, I think we can see the inspiration of a story like Pinkham's model in, you know, in his relationship with Smith. Uh, next, uh, uh, February 12th, 1926, another letter to unknown to some person. And this is just about his own personal experience with astronomy. His, he bought a new book on astronomy. Uh, he bought quite a lot, $1.25, considering all his financial woes. He was fine spending money on books from time to time. Um, but we do, I looked at my previous series on Lovecraft about some of his writings on astronomy. He was obviously interested from a young age in astronomy, and this has continued into his later life. Um, and he's very, very excited. Whoever he's writing this to, he's very excited he got this new book on astronomy. So that's the first 10 letters of the 20 I want to look at. The other 10, okay, uh, March 1926, getting through the winter here. Um, James F. Morton. This is an interesting letter to James Morton um, because, again, we, we see him kind of being just a guy kind of pursuing his interests. He's a little like much like a, he's like a kid here at the toy store almost. Um, so the Metropolitan Museum has a sale. Actually, he writes a letter to Smith around the same time, um, maybe even before. It's just uh, the Morton one is, appears first, dated March. The other one was dated March 4th. So the one dated March gets put first in the ordering. Um, but he, he talks about this sale that the Metropolitan Museum was having of little artifacts. I don't think these were original artifacts. I mean, maybe some of them are, but I'm guessing they're reproductions or copies. He calls them artifacts, though. And he really he's really regrets he doesn't have more money to spend there. Um, he says, here's your dollar back. He owes Morton a dollar. Here's your dollar back. Nothing any good for so little at the Met. So this dollar is not going to allow him to buy much of what he wants. But he was he does say, kind of seem like a kid at a at a at a toy store here, you know, where he sort of wants everything. Uh, little terracotta heads of Greco-Roman design, um, you know. A lot of like this kind of Roman workmanship is what he was interested in. I don't know if these are real or if they're copies. Who knows? Um, yeah, but they're kind of Roman artifacts. So the next letter dated March 4th, as I said. Did I say it's to Smith? No, this is to Clark. This one's back home to F.C. Clark, uh, his, his aunt. Um, he talks about this Metropolitan Museum skill sale as well, but mostly he talks about uh, his his job. He got a job, uh, something he was trying to think about getting before, um, but he finally got a job, and his job is an envelope addresser for Loveman's firm. Loveman's another one of Lovecraft's friends and correspondents. I don't think we've seen too many letters to him, but uh, he was someone Lovecraft wrote letters to, and we'll see some of those letters in the future. Um, but he ends up working for him, just, you know, sending out letters, right? Before you had computers to do that, people had to, you know, fill those out by hand, and that's what he did. And he said he sent out 10,000 catalogs in a few weeks, so he's kind of busy. I don't know how much money he got for each, each one, but it turned out to be 1750 a week. Um, and what does Lovecraft want to use this money for? Well, he t says exactly what he wants to use this for. He wants to spend some of the money for trips and to go back to that sale and buy some of those Roman 
heads. Um, so he's actually got it planned out. He's not totally irresponsible here. He says $3 for a Philadelphia excursion, $5 for a Washington excursion, and possibly a Roman terracotta head from the marvelous sale at the Metropolitan Museum. So spending maybe a, like a third or so of his income from that job. So a lot of nice personal stuff. I, I think these are some of the, these are interesting. Interesting. I mean, my main job here, of course, is to talk about his philosophy and ideology and his works and his, his themes. But, you know, if you're going to read the letters, that's well, you're drawn to it in part for some of the personal drama and feelings. Um, so next, uh, Walter Coates. Um, a letter to Walter Coates dated March 30th, 1926. I think he was a publisher of, of some sort. I'm, I'm not quite sure his relationship with Lovecraft. I think he was like an amateur journalism or some kind of minor publisher. This little selection of this letter, it's a really just one paragraph drawn from the letter, talks mostly about his materialism. And that's, again, something we know about Lovecraft, so there's nothing really new here, but it's a really good summation of his philosophical materialism. He writes, In my younger days, I was fond of these philosophical speculations, but finally reached so complete a degree of skepticism that the very process of philosophizing ceased to interest me. I am an absolute skeptic and materialist and regarded the universe as a wholly purposeless and essentially temporary incident in the ceaseless and boundless rearrangement of electrons, atoms, and molecules which constitute the blind but regular mechanical patterns of cosmic activity. Um, so what does he value then? Well, he values only what can be created by humanity. Um, and he rejects, and he sort of says here why he likes antiquarianism so much is it's, it's kind of a corrective for over-intellectualizing things because you're, you're just kind of dealing with artifacts or dealing with things that are real, things that have been created. Um, calls himself uh, an Epicurean and a dilettante uh, in respect to these things. It's only a few lines, but quite a lot to unpack and think about um, in this, this little letter. Um, next, Wilford Blanche Tolman, uh, Lovecraft letter to him, April 1926. Um, kind of this article kind of fits, I guess, with the Coates letter in, in one way, and that the first is more of the philosophical foundations. This is more about literature. He's praising a story um, that he read called um, Chetwood Arms, a novel, Talman's book. Um, and he asked for some recommendations to read, but mostly the key meaning here is his feelings about cosmic horror. Um, and, and here's what he writes of this. Um, I suppose the thing to urge would be a more bizarre, cosmically external, and utterly non-human set of motives and phenomenons or to achieve the effect of the unknown outside, clawing at the realm, realm of known, end quote. Now, obviously he's sort of imposing on Tolman, like what he would write. Uh, he certainly does that with his revisions, where he takes these ideas from others who say, oh, ghost write this story for me, here's the idea, and he changes it, like the mound is a great example of him doing that. Um, you know, here he's saying, yo, you're a great story, but if you would have wrote it like I would have wrote it, you know, it would have been better. So I don't know how I feel about that letter. It's not the, it's not the most, uh, it's a little bit, too arrogant, I guess, but whatever. Um, next, uh, we really see him going back to 
getting ready to get a Providence too at this time. Um, now, April eighth, nineteen twenty-six, to his aunt um, Clark, he talks about wanting uh, to return to Providence, even though he knows this means he's going to lose his circle. He just uh, really can't make it anymore in New York for all the reasons we've been talking about these two episodes. Um, but also it goes farther than that. He, wants, he seems to want to cast off the entire, entire modern world. Uh, he says, reading, writing, pilgrimage, I, you know, these are things he wants to do. Quote, I want to dream in the atmosphere of my childhood. And so that's what drives him back to, to Providence. So I think this letter was written in New York and the very next letter April 23rd was written in Providence, so I don't have the exact date with me. Someone out there probably knows when he exactly moved back to Providence. But um, he's, he, the city from which he's writing the letters after this one are Providence. So that's it. We can kind of close the book on the New York adventure of H.P. Lovecraft, of, uh, which has uh, some great stories came out of it, certainly. Some new perspectives. I, I think most, most of us agree to some, you know, his, his stories became a little bit more worldly, like Call of Cthulhu, uh, a little bit more epic. And that's a good thing. Uh, we have stories that are drawn directly from his New York experience, like uh, Red Hook and He. Stories we'll look at uh, a few weeks from now when I get back into the stories. It'll be a while, honestly, but uh, I will get back to the stories soon. Uh, personally, uh, a lot of good things about his time in, in, in New York as well with his circle of friends, his connections. But ultimately, um, for personal reasons, financial reasons, emotional reasons, he has to return. So it sounds kind of petulant to say I want to dream in the atmosphere of my childhood. That's kind of how I take it. But, you know, he's Lovecraft, so uh, it's not, that's, he's kind of living in the past all the time. He's an antiquarian. He loves the 18th century. He digs all this old architecture. That's just who he is. That's just part of him, and uh, for better or for worse. Um, his, his genius is, is in spite of that, that, that part of him, I think. All right. Uh, next letter, 214. This, uh, the 214 is how they're numbered in the selected letters. Uh, I'll try not to use them, but that's how I write them down in my notes. So I can use them for research. Um, this is April 23rd, 1926. Wilfred Blanche Tallman. He just, you know, he's the one he said, you should write that story more like I would have wrote it, wrote it a little more cosmic horror. Uh, this story really has a lot about slums and class. I'll just read the whole thing. I trust that Calum outfit still functions harmoniously and that you still get around to most of the meetings. I had begun to emerge from hibernation and took a long scenic ramble, both urban and agrestic, night before last, during the course of which I discovered one of the most hellish slums I ever imagined by mankind. It was a place whose existence I had not realized, the end of Chalkstone Avenue near Randall Square and the railroad, railway. Its dark hilly courts approached the very ultimates of blasphemous horror. Yours for ghouls, afrites, and undertakers, HPL. What to make of this? So he asked about the boys club. You know, he leaves New York. He wants to know how they're doing going on. But talking about finding slums in Providence he didn't see before. It's just so wonderfully. Uh, is it ironic? I don't know. It's just kind of wonderful. It's like the thing he hated about New York. 
part of what he hated about New York. He kind of finds his improvidence too. He just never noticed it before because he never like went to those neighborhoods. That every city in America had these kind of slum neighborhoods and, and has this diverse population. And there's going to be a few letters, as we'll see going on, where he kind of complains about certain neighborhoods of Providence. As much as he loved Providence, there are certain neighborhoods he thought, you know, kind of insmothy. A little bit insmothy. Insmothy. Is that a word? Obviously not, but we can make it one. Uh, next. Frank Belknap went along. Um, he often writes to Long, I think, in very, very honest ways. He, Long was younger than him. And for whatever reason, like, he won't do this to, um, like, Morton. Like, with Morton, there were people like this guy, Reinhard Kleinert. He wrote a lot in his earlier letters. And he would be really straight up about his racism and his views about Europe and, 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 and the war and all this stuff with him. And I think they, it's because they shared a, a point of view. With Morton, Morton disagreed. Morton was more of a socialist and more progressive on racial issues and confronted Lovecraft. And you don't get that same kind of... He would talk sometimes about those things, but not the same way. But with Long, he sometimes is talking down to him, I think. He, he, he sees him more as a student, so he kind of lectures him a lot more about these things. So these are good letters to go to if you want to see him, I think, being more honest. I, I don't know. If I'm wrong about this, let me know. But I, I just get a sense he's a little bit more unfiltered. With, with Long than he is with some other people. Um, so he talks about in this letter, uh, which is April 23rd, 1926, the same date he wrote the letter to Tallman. So the same stuff was on the mind, right? And he discusses a Manchester slum and suburb pilgrimage, quote, in quest of mystery and horror. And, um, and he talks again about how he found these same kind of neighborhoods in Providence. Uh, he's got this fascination with the streets and alleys, and he starts to see Providence in a new way, which I think is great. I think it's 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 valuable that, and I think this is maybe with, without the New York experience, maybe he never would have seen this or or appreciated it or interpreted it in the same way. There was something because he was in New York, he could see Providence in in, the, in this new light, I guess. Um, Quote, I found one monstrous and blasphemous neighborhood whose existence I never suspected, a region actually inhabited by degraded and quasi-human forms of life, where I always fancied there were mere factories and railway yards. And here, here's what I mean by, I think he's being a little more unfiltered with him. To Talman, he just says there was kind of a slum there. Um, too long, he talks about degraded and quasi-human forms of life. I mean, the really nasty, despicable language emerges there. Oozing, quote, oozing out of the various apertures and dragging themselves along the narrow lines are shapeless forms of organic entity whose dead faces hint fiendishly at the rites and orgies and incantations in the hideous leaning synagogue whose wormy unpainted boards hold strange eastern signs and holy marks taken from the Kabbalah and the Necronomicon. Awful things have been invoked in the pits under that accursed temple. One can read it in the puffy, malformed faces of the slum-like beings, half Jew and half Negro, apparently, which crawl and wheeze. Ah, fuck it. I'm not going to... You get the point, right? It's pretty nasty. It's, it, it doesn't make Lovecraft look too good. The good news is he's at least opening himself up to that, that, that providence is more diverse than he thought. Um... But what's important here is he imagines, he imagines ancient traditions alive in them. And, and here it's kind of like the core of like the idea in the Call of Cthulhu is that in these uh, 
kind of sailors and mulattoes and and suspicious people all across the Atlantic, Eskimos, whatever, there lives on kind of the Cthulhu cult, uh, the, the, the ancient traditions. And he imagines them there, like the Necronomicon or whatever, the Kabbalah. And he wants to write a story inspired by this. And I don't know if he's talking about Red Hook. Maybe he's talking about Call of Cthulhu. I don't know. But the greatest, greatest thing is this town he loved, this town he constantly whined about not being able to visit, not, not being at anymore. He didn't even know his town very well. And yeah, sure, many of us don't even know the towns we live in or every aspect of it. But I just, I just kind of find it humorous in a, in, a, in a way how ignorant he was of where he was from. A great letter, though, um, for, for uh, if, if you want to go at Lovecraft for being a racist, I guess. Uh, uh, next one, again, to. Uh, Frank Belknap Long, another, about a week later, May 1st, 1926. Um, and here's a lot of meditation on New York. That's why this letter is important. I think a lot of people have looked at this letter. He really longs for the meetings, the friendships, the camaraderie, but he hates New York still. And he hopes that his friends will come to Providence. He calls New York a dead city. Um, he provides in this letter some of Clark Ash Smith's works, and he calls them an opiate madness unleashed. Uh, again, he's got this fanboyish attitude towards Smith. He provides some memorabilia of Providence for the boys, kind of just, you know, no cards, postcards, whatever, those kinds of things. By and large of this letter, which is five, six pages, um, it's the longest one in this section of, of letters I'm looking at. Um, he, it's mostly about his feelings, his meditations on New York after having coming back to Providence. What's changed in Providence? What's familiar in Providence? And what about New York? What are his thoughts about New York? There's a lot to say here. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much of I will say, but it's a good letter. It's, it's, it's an important letter. Um, he basically says America has lost New York due to mongrels. Um, that's the exact language he uses, mongrels. What does, this is his writing, what does a blind spot or two in one's existence matter? America has lost New York to the mongrels, but the sun shines just as brightly over Providence and Portsmouth and Salem and Marblehead. I have lost 1924 and 1925, but the dawn of Vernal 1926 is just as lovely as I view it from Rodsendler windows. So he, America loses New York. He loses two years of his life spent in New York. You know, I think the reality is more complicated, but... Um, he will preserve uh, Providence's beauty in his memory. He talks about this because he realizes Providence is changing. Again, we have the last letter to the same guy where he's already talked about changes taking place in Providence and his concerns about it. He sees uh, New York really has lost time, obviously. He mentions it several times in here. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something he repeats a lot here. Um, he talks about the experience of returning home. Uh, quote, my world is Providence. We now took a taxi cab for home at Barn Street. The ancient colonial neighborhoods I've always known and were soon greeted by aunts and faithful Negress Delilah, whom they had hired to straighten things out. And then uh, there's some of the details of his return home, if you're interested in that. But he describes his home, his archi the architecture of Providence. And he repeats that Providence in his view, is the most beautiful city in the world. And then he kind of 
the letter boils down with some of his travel plans and his future plans. But um, as a contrast between how he feels about Providence with how he felt about New York, I don't think many letters do this better. It's not the I am Providence letter, but it's, it's maybe better at synthesizing his feelings at the time. Um, next letter is to Clark Ashton Smith, May 14th, 1926. Um, you know, mostly about painting. Lovecraft was very interested in painting. I talked about this when we looked at the stories, his interest in art, his interest in painting. He, uh, he talks about uh, sending, again, Smith's paintings to the gang. Keeps repeating that. I don't know why it never got done. But, um, and then he, there's a lot here about phallic images and art, and he's kind of questioning Smith about the meaning of phallic images and... And question, but he questions whether phallic interpretations of art, of art and architecture are very useful, especially architecture. Like you got the steeple, right, or the tower. You know, I think Lovecraft was kind of skeptical of anyone trying to give a sexualized meaning to that. I don't know if that's just him being a little bit, because he's not really prudish. Overall, I mean, he's not interested in sex the way some writers are, but but he doesn't think. Pointy phallic uh, things necessarily need to be interpreted much. He thinks it's kind of modern psychology. I'm going amok. All right, final letter. James F. Morton, May 16th, 1926. This is the I Am Providence letter. Um, so and he, the main point of this letter is how much clearer his mind has become since he has returned to Providence. Um, but I'll just read you the, the paragraph, the section. Quote, now I find something of my antique providence fluency returning by degrees, and I've been able to keep my correspondence in manageable shape without more than a fraction of the effort which was forced to expend when engulfed in the nightmare of Brooklyn's mongrel slums. That experience has already become the merest vague dream, and it is with difficulty that I can make myself realize, if any, in any convincing or subjective way, that I have ever been away from any length of time. Sorry, I'll reread that. That experience has already become the mirror's vaguest dream, and it is with difficulty that I can make myself realize, if any con in any convincing or subjective way, that I've ever been away for any length of time. I am Providence and Providence myself. Together, indissolubly as one, we stand through the ages, a fixed monument set eternally in the shadow of Durfane's ice-clad peak. Um, so that's it. That's the I am Providence letter. Really famous. But, um, so that does it. So these letters got us really to him back to Providence where he'll spend the rest of his life except for his little antiquarian adventures that he'll go on. Next episode, I'll look at the next 20 letters covering May to October 1926. Uh, anything interesting? Just looking at my notes here. There's a lot on literature. Oh, there's a really long letter, again to long, about Jews. So I think that'll be my focus next time. Some stuff on immigration. I don't know. We'll see. His letters do get longer when he goes back to Providence. I think, you know, I think we take, I take his word for it that he had trouble writing letters when he was in New York. So anyways, that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for this uh, odious. Thanks for sharing this odious adventure of, of reading through the selected letters with me. I hope you get something out of it, uh, or some perspective, or or whatever. Or if I'm, you know, if I get it all wrong, let me know. 
in the comments, send me an email to 100pagescast at gmail.com or whatever. Uh, I'll see you next time. Um, or we'll do this again with uh, another chunk of his letters. Thanks for listening.